Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And I'm Georgina. And this week, we are going to be talking about Jack Parsons in our Scientist and Occultist series that we started. But before we go ahead and do that, we're going to have Georgina do our What Happened on This Day. It is currently November 19th. So Georgina, go ahead. On this day, there was actually quite a lot going on, but the birth of Eileen Marie Collins was today in 1956. Eileen was an American astronaut who was the first woman to pilot and then later command a U.S. space shuttle. After she joined the Air, Air Force, she trained as a pilot to fly many different kinds of planes and eventually became an instructor pilot. Collins served as the first woman shuttle to pilot STS-63, which include a rendezvous with Russian space station Mir and also STS-84. On her third space shuttle flight, STS-93, interesting number, very fitting for today's discussion, which deployed the Shonda X-ray Observatory, she became the first woman space shuttle commander. Overall, she has logged over 537 hours in space, which sounds like quite a lot of time. It's very fitting for today's episode. Before we get into Jack Parsons and talk about him, we want to welcome Georgina. Georgina, if you want to introduce yourself to the podcast and give your whole spiel. Well, hello. Uh, I'm Georgina Rose. I go by Dot Darling, D-A-T on the internet. I'm a thelemite and I'm a ceremonial magician. I've been practicing for six or so years. I don't remember the exact dates. I just kind of eyeball it. My entire practice is very ceremonial. I follow the law of Philema and everything I do. And online, I host the podcast Magnolias and Magic. I have a YouTube channel. I'm on all the social media platforms. I talk about Philema, the occult, esoterica, and give my commentary on what's going on in the communities and stuff. And I'm very excited to be here as Jack Parsons is one of my favorite historic occultists and someone that I feel very, very strongly about. As soon as we decided we were going to do a Jack Parsons episode, my mind immediately went to you. I was like, he is Georgina's favorite occultist. Let's bring her on board. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I could talk about Parsons for a very long time, so I'm, I'm going to enjoy those. I didn't know your commentary. <laughs> okay, so let's just dive right in and talk about who Jack Parsons was. So I'm just going to give a brief overview, and we are going to get more detailed as we go along. Parsons was an acclaimed American rocket engineer, chemist, and thelemite. He was the founder of many corporations, actually, that had massive impacts on the U.S. space program and one of the most prominent figures in America propagating Philema. Fascination with science, particularly explosions, which got him into trouble later, began at a young age, back when he worked at Hercules Powder Company while in high school. And it was here that he learned about explosives and their potential use in rocket propulsion. This knowledge led him to independently study rocket science by building his own rockets in his spare time. Surprisingly, actually, Parsons never obtained a degree, not for lack of trying, it was mostly financial issues that arose. Regardless, he joined forces with Frank Molina, who was a PhD student at Caltech and a mathematician and mechanical engineer, along with his childhood friend Edward Foreman, who also built rockets when they were children, to form Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory Rocket Research Group at Caltech under the advisement of Frank Molina's advisor. Over the years, many of their initial attempts of rocket launches failed, and the rocket research group, which actually earned the nickname the Suicide Squad because of the dangerous nature of their experiments, managed to develop a static rocket motor, which could run for over a minute compared to only three seconds a few years earlier when they initially began. 
But the Rocket Research Group didn't last all that long and disintegrated to the original three founders, Molina, Foreman, and Parsons, in 1938. It, however, quickly resurfaced when Frank Molina approached the National Academy of Sciences Committee to request funding for jet propulsion, which is kind of the big thing that both the Rocket Research Group and Parsons is known for. The Rocket Research Group put together a proposal at the time on the feasibility of something called JATO, or Jet Assisted Takeoff, and thus their group became the first U.S.-sanctioned rocket research group, kind of the beginning of the interest in space, in the U.S. space program. It was actually during World War II specifically that the rocket research group experimented with solid fuel alternatives to power planes and then established the Aerojet Engineering Corporation in March 1942, which is still around. They did that to fulfill an order from the U.S. military at the time for 60 JATO engines for use in the war. And this was expanded later. The military asked for up to, I think it was 2,000 JATO engines. And then as time went on, the rocket research group actually was renamed to something else that I can't remember at the moment. And that still exists today as well, although it has transitioned from more of a military-funded research group to actually looking at like rocket science and trying to actually propel rockets into space, which was actually Parsons' like initial interest. He really cared much more about the rocket science and less about the military stuff, but they were kind of forced into that based on funding and obviously the world wars, which had a big impact on them as well. Parsons from a super young age actually believed that space travel was possible. When he was a kid, he read a lot of science fiction and was started to having spiritual experiences really young. There's a particular story that he tells where when he was six, he claims he saw the devil and then thought it wasn't real for years and then later thought it was true. But his entire childhood, he read so much like science fiction books that he was convinced that we could get into space, which when he was a kid, was seen as basically like fantasy. It was seen as like absolutely impossible. He was kind of laughed at by a lot of the people, especially those at Caltech when he was trying to get funding and all that. Because, you know, he wasn't taken very seriously because he didn't have the degree. He was really kind of out there with his ideas. Even when he was doing all these rocket tests, he would do the him to pan before all of them, like in front of everyone. They all thought he was like a complete nutter, but then they realized he was right and, you know, he gained esteem that way. But yeah, he he was a big believer in this. And some of his actual occult practices related to his idea of, you know, getting us to space. So he integrated the occult and his scientific work, like, very, very closely as he saw doing these hem to pans is really important to making this stuff work. And obviously his technology did work. I mean, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which he founded, would become basically NASA. Um, he's kind of been written out of history in a lot of ways within, I think it's the Smithsonian. There's some aerospace museum. His name is only mentioned on like one plaque, whereas his cohorts are given quite a bit of feature in it because of his scandalous personal life, to say the least, and his very, in my opinion, very great beliefs. But to the government, he's, he's you know, he's seen as a little bit quirky. Yeah, I definitely agree. I was looking for resources on his actual scientific work, and I was seeing him referred to as the father of rocket science, things like that. But it was actually very difficult to find out what he did, because he has been sort of reduced to a footnote in many ways. I think that is changing. There's been a moon crater named after him. There are kind of efforts to acknowledge his work. But his actual contributions, I think, were very much minimized because of his occultism. How he actually revolutionized rocket science was predominantly in terms of the development of fuels. So the first rockets were solid state. They used to use things like gunpowder. And solid state fuels are really good because they don't degrade very much over time. So they're stable, but they're not always as efficient as liquid fuels. 
So basically Parsons was a chemist and he worked on developing and optimizing solid state fuels. So he combined asphalt and potassium perchlorate as an oxidizer to make the first castable composite solid propellant. What does that mean? Basically, castable means that they can cast it into a shape, increase surface area, it can be integrated with the rocket motor, which means that it's more stable, more surface area for burning, and also you can get larger motors, so this allows it to go up further into space. And also, the composite fuels were more efficacious, slower burning, could burn for longer. So these are really, really significant developments, and it's pretty awful that over time, due to his occultist affiliations, also some of his political affiliations, his name has been lost to time a little bit. So I don't know, Phil, if you want to address why he might have been ejected from our history books. Basically, around this time, so this would be like late 40s, throughout the 50s, there was McCarthyism. Oh, joy. And HUAC, the House of Un-American Activities. And I believe Parsons was, I think he was subpoenaed by the House of Un-American Activities, if I remember reading that correctly. They were basically this way of trying to stop communism in the U.S. and the the Red Scare, blacklisting people, destroying people's careers. It was very much like Arthur Miller wrote the play The Crucible, which is about the Salem Witch Trials. He wrote that play about this time period in history, basically comparing the trials of HUAC and the result of the Red Scare and McCarthyism to the witch trials because people were often encouraged to name who they knew. And it was just kind of this whole whole spiral of paranoia and fear that destroyed a lot of good people's lives and reputations and still feel those ramifications today, both in the arts and in the sciences, which oftentimes attracted people who were too free thinking for their liking. And you also didn't even have to be a communist to be confronted by HUAC. You could literally just have picked up a flyer. If you were, you know, LGBTQ, they would be like, oh, you're probably a communist, even if even if you weren't. Well, because his politics, he gets written one or two ways when people write about him. They either describe him as a libertarian or a communist. I've read all his political writings that have been sort of saved. I would consider him an anarchist, like a left-wing anarchist would probably be the most accurate way to describe his politics because he was critical of like the Soviets. He thought that they were authoritarian. He didn't like the way that they were so repressive. So them investigating him, I always found very strange because he was not pro-Soviet. He was, he th- they thought they were dictatorial. He didn't like the way that they impeded on people's sort of free thought. And when you read his writings about politics specifically, there's a really good, it's an essay he wrote called Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. It talks about Thelema, it talks about politics. It's like 20 pages long. It's re-uploaded on the internet places. Um, It's out of copyright. And he talks a lot about how he feels like people's free speech is being infringed upon by these Red Scare people. He's like, this is impacting like the American value of speech and liberty because people can believe what they want. And of course, his Thelema did play into this because he was in correspondence with Aleister Crowley, who was the founder of Thelema, very, very famous occultist. But Crowley did work with British intelligence during World War II on the side of the Brits. He, in particular, was hired to write articles for a publication called The Fatherland. The Fatherland was a pro-German publication, and the British government paid him to write articles to make the German side look bad. So Crowley wrote these, like, farcically bad articles to essentially, like, delegitimize German ideology of that, you know, you know German World War II ideology to British people. But he was obviously working for intelligence. He also um, created the V for Victory hand sign. That was Crowley's invention for those who've seen the like Churchill with the V for Victory. Because in the Thelemic formula called the LBX key, 
there's the uh, swastika done with the hand with a hand gesture, and then after that, it's destroyed by the V. So he actually created that as a sigil, which very few people know. But because of Parsons communicating with Crowley during the World War, as well as Parsons' anarchist tendencies and being in a leftist book club and stuff like that, those together, they thought that he wasn't really allied with the U.S. They're like, this guy's working for our military, he's working for our nation, but he's got these ties to other nations. He's not a true American because he's talking to the Brits and he's got these, what they saw as like Soviet politics. And so they were convinced they investigated him. First, he lost his security clearance. Then he would, you know, eventually lose his sort of job. And it was bad. I mean, his entire life was investigated because he was clearly not against America. He's not an anti-American by any stretch. And so it's just very messed up. And it's because of this stuff that they did write him out of history. Like, his connection to Thelema, his anarchism, all that pointing. And I'm really glad that people have been giving him more credit over the past few decades. They made a TV show about him called Strange Angel a couple years ago, which, by the way, it's a very, very good show. And I was like, you know what? At least this is something. At least it's a little bit of a little bit of credit for Jack. Well, it's funny to me that he's, he's like written out of history primarily for his like outspokenness and then also his religious beliefs because actually the composition of the solid fuel that he initially designed was inspired by the idea of Greek fire when that that generally came from his study in Thelema, like that was part of it. And so something today that is quite useful, and granted it was the initial one, so it also exploded and almost, you know, killed people, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> that inspiration like came from his religious philosophy. And so you have this, this really great, intelligent, brilliant, really American rocket scientist who is getting inspiration for these things that arguably gave him, like, helped America in the World War, being totally written out of history, even though he made such a big impact. It's really, really unfortunate. Moving off of that, let's talk about the political, religious, and maybe historical context around Parsons at that time that maybe caused him to develop these kind of views. And for that, I'm going to pass it off to Fella and Georgina, because this is kind of your, both of your areas of expertise. I'm going to start with zooming out, I guess, a little bit. So zooming out from Jack Parsons to look at California in general, because California has always been very culturally and religiously unique, as well as like politically. They all kind of tie into each other. Around this time, even more generally than California. So in the 1940s, around 43% of the public attended church regularly. And after World War II, this rose to about 55% with over 95% of Americans associated with some religious tradition. That's just associated. I think the number is actually like 70% for who actually attended some sort of religious organization. So we see how after World War II, it kind of has a sharp incline. A lot of current religious fundamentalist movements can trace their ties back to the 1950s. There was kind of what people call a fundamentalism boom. A lot of that kind of began in two places, uh, which they seem very different on the surface, but they have a lot of shared religious history, and they'll be Massachusetts and California. What I find fascinating about California is that there are a lot of uh, New England expats, not New England expats, we're, well, I guess the New England Patriots, <laughs> I guess you are kind of an expat. <laughs> um, but a lot of New England folks went over to California for various reasons and brought a lot of their ideas with them. Also, at this time, we see the rise of early science fiction. We touched a little bit, or Georgina touched a little bit on how this kind of impacted Parsons. But what's really interesting about science fiction is that it really bridged a lot of gaps in some ways that had formed between science and spirituality. Not wholly, I would say more so philosophy 
and science as opposed to spirituality and science, but it kind of became this perfect exploration of conspiracy, philosophy, spirituality. I mean, if you look at any sci-fi from that time period, from the 40s upwards, it's all kind of wild and very philosophical. The way that Thelema kind of tracked to California, because California is really important in Thelemic history. Like in general, it's always been a hub. Thelema began in Victorian England, like at the at the tail end of the Victorian period, early Edwardian, really kicks off in the Edwardian period. And it enters the US around the time that Parsons was getting into it. So Thelema kind of went from London to Germany because there was a big boom of Thelema during the Weimar period with it then being criminalized as the Third Reich rises. Thelema was criminalized. So every Thelemite who's in Germany had to flee the country or risk arrest, which a few people did get arrested. Most of them were fine, thankfully. But, you know, all the Thelemites had to run out of Germany. Thelema at that point really was... Of course, it was always continuing in London. Flame has always had a big presence in the UK, but it started getting into the US through California. Crowley had been in New York City briefly for a couple months, but it really picks up in California. And the OTO, which is the primary Thelemic organization, which originates in Germany, then Aleister Crowley overtook it and it exploded in the UK. And then the first U.S. lodge is founded in California called Agape Lodge. It was the real first time Flame was established. It was in Pasadena, which is where... Parsons lived. There's this misconception that Parsons kind of just stumbled into Agape Lodge. It's not how that happened. He found a Crowley book, found it interesting, and then showed up. And he gets really, really involved, gains quite a bit of power in the organization. And after Parsons' death, the OTO kind of dissolved. And then once again in the 70s, reunites in New York, but particularly in California. And now, like in 2021, the biggest Thelemic like, groups are all in California. It's the number one place for Thelemites numbers-wise currently still. So California counterculture and Thelema like, have always meshed in a very interesting way. There's always been that kind of exchange. California is really such a, a, a meshing of, of all these ideas. There were several other ones that are important to the history of a lot of new religious movements, especially in Western esotericism. Uh, one of those would be theosophy. Theosophy was huge in California. I would say that I think some of our biggest theosophical societies that still exist today exist in California, specifically in the Los Angeles County area. And it was funny, I found an article from March 1930 published from Time Magazine that talked about <laughs> the different cults in California, and it wrote about uh, theosophy and Freemasonry <laughs> in California. I love reading those old articles. There's one from, I think it's from the late 80s, where there was some Thelemic Lodge popping up in Berkeley, California. And it was, it's so, they're all so dramatically written. I know. I, I, they're great. Here's what this one had to say. So this is from March 1930. And it was actually in an article called Religion Cults. A lot of people see, think when they think of cults, they think of the 1970s, but there was actually two big cult booms. One of them was in the 20s and 30s, and the other one was in the 60s and 70s. It says, Protestantism is struggling for unity. Catholicism reiterates its commands, but has a hard time enforcing them. And Russia is the unprecedented spectacle of the communistic, anti-religious crusade. Thousands of persons dissatisfied with the face of their fathers seek new spiritual footholds. Thus, as always in such troubled times, there is a flourishing of cults, of religious novelties and new fashions in faith. Flowery, sun-drenched California, where nature exhibits herself in mystical opulence, where plenty of people have plenty of money. 
where there are many invalids contemplating eternity is particularly propitious for this flourishing. Even back in 1930, they were like, yeah, there are some wild things happening here. Another New England import in the California religious history would be spiritualism. Spiritualism, as we're coming to find on this podcast, has a very shocking, not shocking, but a surprising and kind of disconcerting influence on a, a lot of the modern occult community, even with certain things keeping its same name or like sometimes like where the heck did this weird idea come from? And then it usually traces back to the spiritualists. We talked about our spiritualists in our psychics and paranormal episode. And also a lot of these other groups we talked about in our new age episode as well. So spiritualism was quite popular among the wealthy and influential and the scientists, interestingly enough, which were also huge in California. We also see the rise of Pentecostalism, which was born in Southern California in 1906, where they actually, I didn't know this, the Pentecostalists cited theosophy as an inspiration for how they organized their religion, which is wild considering I don't really view theosophy as being that related to something that is such a fundamentalist Christian movement. Yeah, that's an interesting connection. I actually didn't know that because I always associate theosophy with like the general, because a lot of the new age ideas root in theosophy. Theosophy was really that vibe. So that's really interesting. I didn't know that. This time in the midst of World War One, we see another New England import, which is New Thought. We also talked about the New Thought movement in our New Age episode. So there was lots of lodge-style and communal new religions. So there was Theosophy, there was Freemasonry, there was the Limic Lodges. So I think what also made California a prime place for this is the fact that in California, unlike other cities that we'd seen, like Boston or New York, where you know you can just go outside and walk somewhere and then go home, there was kind of this, there's a separation that exists in California because California was built largely by the influence of the oil industry, which pumped cars, you know? That's why people who live in LA say it's impossible to get anywhere on public transit. You have to drive, even if you live in a city. So I think that's kind of why a lot of these communal situations, whether that's communal living or just a place to go and be with a lot of people who meet certain needs, it was very popular in California. Most of the groups I've mentioned are occult, but not necessarily occult. However, California has often been called the cult center of America. A lot of cults like Jonestown started in California, Scientology. We actually are going to, I'm going to touch on Scientology a little bit because from my understanding, Jack Persons had an interesting relationship with a certain L. Ron Hubbard. That relationship, <laughs> um, I can give some background on that. So L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons knew each other. And it's a very interesting relationship because L. Ron Hubbard, as you guys know, before he went started Scientology, he was a science fiction writer. Jack Parsons loved sci-fi. They met at a book club and they became close friends because at this point, by the time they were connecting, Jack Parsons had been established. He had sort of made a name for himself. You know, he was kind of successful by that point. And so Elrond saw this as an opportunity. He got really, really close to Parsons and Parsons being a Thelemite was running this lodge. And so Elrond started showing up to this Thelemic Lodge and eventually would go with Parsons to do the Babylon working, which is one of Parsons' biggest occult contributions. And then L. Ron Hubbard, like the little snake he is, decided to steal Jack Parsons' woman about $10,000, somewhere in that range. I don't know how to convert it. I don't know if that's the converted for inflation or that's the original amount. It was a substantial amount of money. And his yacht... And then decided to start Scientology, which Scientology, 
you know, that's a massive cult, very toxic. I do think that the biggest impact Thelema had on Scientology is the degree and level system that Scientology uses, because the OTO is leveled, but not in the same way Scientology is. Scientology, theologically, is really different from Thelema, because I tried reading Dianetics to see if I saw any Thelemic influence on it, which is, by the way, like the most popular Scientology book. It's not there. Elrond saw that religion is a good way to get people together and take advantage of them, and then went with that. Like, there's not... There's not a real huge ideological Thelema-Scientology connection, but I think he saw how committed people like Parsons were and was like, yeah, this is something I can take advantage of. But he actually claimed years later that the only reason why he did the Babylon working with Parsons was because he was part of the FBI investigation into Parsons because of the Red Scare. This is not true, by the way. Those documents are declassified. I read through all the pages of them. I read through like all 200 pages of the Parsons file. Let me tell you whose name's not in there once. L. Ron Hubbard. So he lied to make Scientology not associated with Crowley and was like, yeah, well, I was part of the, the U.S. investigation. Not true. But yeah, it's it's a whole, whole mess. Uh, justice for Jack. We're trying to get the yacht back. It'll happen one day. But yeah, he's, he's, he's a sleazebag. Like, he really did take advantage of Jack, who thought they were friends. Aleister Crowley actually wrote about Elrond after meeting him because of Jack Parsons and called Elrond Hubbard one of the biggest idiots he had ever met, which I gotta love wow. the shade. He, he didn't hide his feelings, so. <laughs> which is funny, because I, I found this writing from Parsons, which I just think is very funny. Although Elrond Ron has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experience, I deduce that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair whom he calls the Empress and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met is in complete accord with our own principles. Yeah, I'm just going to be honest. Crowley... (laughs) Did not agree with that. Crowley and Parsons had a really interesting relationship in general because Parsons, like, adored Crowley, really looked up to him. Crowley thought that Parsons was too hedonistic and his magic was not, like, like, pristine enough. They thought he was too sloppy. Crowley's like, he's a good occultist, but he is sloppy. And Parsons was like, I love you. Many people within the, at like Caltech specifically at the time, didn't actually want Parsons to be working on anything there in the rocket research group because of his propensity of being super sloppy and messy and dangerous with all of his experiments. They actually had to move the rocket research group kind of from the middle of campus to the outskirts because of how dangerous Parsons' experiments were to save face with the students and the faculty there. He had a penchant for being quite dangerous uh, and lacking all of the kind of lab safety that we push today. And his occult work was very intense. Uh, when he went to do the Babylon working, he went out into the middle of the Mojave Desert with like a couple people and just stayed there for days. And they did a bunch of interesting rites, I'll say that, out there. The Lemic ceremonial magic can get very technical, right? Like people can get really into like the correspondences, vibrating things correctly. Parsons really wasn't as interested in that. Like he did the magic, but he did it in a very more chaosy way. And I don't mean that in like a chaos magic chaosy way. Like he's like, what matters is sort of the core of it, the essence of it. These like stodgy focuses on attributions is not really the core of it, which I actually agree with to an extent. And towards like the later portion of his life, 
he actually would make an entire, his concept of Thelema actually broke off quite a bit from the original conception. I think one of the most interesting things is he was really the only Thelemite to try to bring witchcraft into Thelema because the original London European Thelemites kind of looked down on witchcraft. They put it in the same category as like spiritism, spiritualism, which they didn't like. Crowley actually wrote like a distract to spiritualism. He thought it was like not on the same level as the science of ceremonial magic, which you can see those attitudes on Twitter nowadays. Parsons really liked witchcraft. He kind of liked the more low magic-y stuff. So he made his own break-off system towards the end of his life, posing Babylon and Horus as the god and goddess of Thelema, and channeled a text called Liber 49 that he believed to be the fourth chapter of the Book of the Law, Thelemites debate how important it is. I think it's a beautiful piece of writing. I don't think it's the book of the law, but I think it is an amazing piece. And it's interesting, the god and goddess thing, because that was around the same time Gerald Gardner was coming up with the Wicca ideas, but those two never corresponded. So I think it's interesting. And Wicca, for those who don't know, Gerald Gardner, who founded Wicca, was a student under the OTO for multiple years in Europe. So I find that sort of parallel very, very interesting, considering they never really interacted with each other. Parsons' occult work was actually very interesting. It was a feminine-centric, because he was really devoted to this goddess Babylon. And in one channeling session, he channeled, I will light like a candle flame and embody the goddess Babylon. Which is interesting, because later in his life, he would do the Babylon work, but he would also die in an explosion. So I find that all very fascinating. I find that one channeled writing, I will go up, I think it's, I will go up like a candle flame with the passion of Babylon or something. And I'm like, oh, that's a little, little foreboding there. (laughs) His occult work is controversial within Thelema. I think he was a genius. I will die on this hill. I would definitely be curious to see how Californian thelemic groups view parsons because i i often feel like as someone who's lived on the east coast my entire life i sometimes feel like california even though like there's a lot of east coast and like specifically new england transplants i feel like they're on another spiritual wavelength this was like yoga was introduced into and like eastern practices were introduced into california in the 1890s and so like since the 1890s they've been the center of new religious movements and i would be very curious to just kind of see all of the crazy crossover that has happened between all of them, whether people want that crossover to happen or not. We can move on to the next thing, I guess, before then. So, yeah, the the main reason I'm bringing up, like, California religious history at all is just because I think it's a fascinating background. I mean, I don't believe anyone or anything or any belief exists in a, in a vacuum. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize how, like, even in, even in that time period and even amongst, like, the scientists, not all of them were sort of crazy or they might have been this person's crazy but i'm i'm also a spiritualist you know like california amongst the scientists in, in over there especially in caltech they were like had some very interesting scientific beliefs and would apply their beliefs to their science and their science to their beliefs and this is even seen today because california is really a mix of like tech money artists and just a bunch of wild things all baking together under that Californian sun. And even now, I mean, the Thelemic revival in the U.S. in the 70s, because obviously things were shut down after Parsons' death, things went really quiet in the U.S., the OTO lineage was broken. So there was no OTO chapters in the U.S. for a long time. When they started back up, I mean, the people, and a lot of them are still alive, some of them on Twitter, who are the Thelemites who sort of kicked back off modern Thelema, 
in the US in particular, which now there's more American Thelemites than there are over in the UK, a lot of them were very influenced by this Californian culture. And you can see it in the way that they framed Thelema versus how some of the very original Thelemites did. Like, nothing exists in a vacuum. I mean, people, like, our, our wave of occultists, I mean, you see some influences on us, even if we're in a specific tradition from the wider, you know, the wider occult community. In regards to, like, spiritualism and its impact on science at the time in California, it's interesting because you can actually see this distinction between Parsons and Frank Molina, the person that he engaged with at Caltech initially to start this rocket research group under Melina's advisor. And it's funny because Parson and also Foreman and actually Melina's advisor write about how Melina was kind of more focused on like the technical aspect and the theoretical aspect of science and how if there hadn't been kind of a practical aspect to it, then, you know, Melina would have never gotten around to doing anything other than solving equations. But Parsons, a lot of his desire to like be practical stemmed from this spiritual desire to like get to understand essentially like space. That's why they wanted to launch the rockets. And so a lot of that impacted kind of his push for these practical results. Whereas in kind of the other camp, it was more focused on the theoretical and like what is possible at the time. So you do see these two kind of different groups within the scientific community at that time, one kind of fueled by this religious desire to understand nature and the other by this more technical desire to look at science. A lot of times people, I mean, I think we kind of talked a little bit about this on our first episode. A lot of times people see science and think it equals atheism, but that's really false. <laughs> I mean, a lot, like a lot of like rocket scientists or, or people who are astrophysicists are like extremely spiritual people. Everyone in my family, every male person in my family has a degree in physics and every single one of them is religious <laughs> in some manner. Or like my aunt has a degree in astrophysics and worked at NASA and she's like in the California spiritual, like new thought and new age scene. So it's not really a fine line, which I think confuses a lot of like anti-theists sometimes. Well, a lot of Parsons' desire is connected to his religious desires. His belief about getting to space, his, the importance he thought about it, it's something he'd been fantasizing about his entire life. You know, it was at sort of the core of his will, to be honest. I mean, he didn't see it as like a secular pursuit. He literally believed that if he prayed to Pan, that the rockets would go up. He believed that if he did this one ritual to create a moon child, it would help us get to space. Like he did rituals to make this stuff happen. He fully believed that like the ritual practices would give him the tools to get to space. It was not detached in any way. And that's why he would always like do weird ritualistic stuff while doing the test because he thought that they would make it work. And his sort of view of science was very, very connected to this. I mean, his understanding of will, which is one of the core philosophic principles of Thelema, you know, he believed that will would help all this happen because he believed that nothing could work without. Now we use the whole like manifest technology. He's like, we can will this into existence. And I mean, it worked. It definitely worked for him. Whether you credit the occult practices or not, he certainly did. And so it's very, very important in his drive for science. And he sort of had this, this belief that getting into the stars would really help the humanity grow. You know, it wasn't just like, we should observe the sky because the sky is cool. He believed that it would sort of further humanity to the next step. I wanted to ask about that, actually, because I was wondering if his his goal to get to space was actually spiritually driven. Because I saw some allegories, some people wrote about speculating that 
his transcendence of earth was also perceived to be a, a kind of spiritual transcendence of sort of material. But I don't know how true that is necessarily. I'm just I'm just curious about what his spiritual goal was in terms of actually getting into space and whether there was something more there. The problem is a lot of his journals were destroyed by his partner, Marjorie Cameron. So some of it we don't have records of because she destroyed a lot of her paintings and his journals after his death because she was really distraught by the whole thing. And there was something to it. I don't know specifically if it was just his idea of transcending the material because that was kind of present. But he certainly believed there was something really important about it. I think that there was a very spiritual drive to it because... He was in a true Thelemite in that he believed you should embody will and everything you do and that all this stuff can lead to something. He was not, he was certainly not a psychological model practitioner, right? He believed that Babylon and Pan were helping him do this. You know, he saw it as like a very intense, important devotional thing that needed to happen. He's like, I will do all the rituals to make it happen. So there, there is certainly some drive beyond, I want to observe the space and do mathematics. Like there's, there was clearly more to it. He never is exactly clear on what exactly he thought it would do, but he certainly related it back to his Thelema conviction. He was very, very convicted about Thelema. He was not like a casual practitioner. You know, he didn't like make moon water or something. Like he was, he was all in, you know, he was doing rituals daily. I mean, it would be the most authentic moon water you could possibly get. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the intersection of, of Parsons, maybe religion, like his spirituality, and then also the science. This is actually one of the reasons why Parsons was kind of began to be looked upon suspiciously by the FBI at this point, because his co-workers, actually Molina's, Frank Molina's boss, described Parsons as like a delightful screwball, <laughs> saying that he <laughs> frequently heard him reciting the hymn to Pan, Crowley's hymn to Pan, prior to yeah. the lunch and like like enthusiastically i mean there are accounts of people saying that he did it so enthusiastically it's like watching billy graham preach i think is how i saw some people um describe <laughs> like how you know enthusiastic he was about this that is really what kind of brought about the suspicion on him because people began to at the time with the rising of kind of the cults in california salama began to be regarded as like a black magic cult and so people thought that there was some kind of like spellcasting going on when he was reciting these hymns and also doing the workings of Babylon in regards to the science. And so that became very unfavorable. And eventually, like we said earlier, it led to him leave him losing his clearance, but eventually being kind of banned from the scientific community altogether. He, before the end of his life, just like wasn't able to study rocket science at all. And he reverted strictly back to occultism toward the end of it. Well, he was really unwelcomed. He was offered a job in Israel at one point. Yep. The U.S. did not want to work with him because they saw his interest as not committed enough. They thought that his allegiance to Thelema was more strong than his allegiance to America. And it's, it's funny because he was clearly so devoted to science, but they just, they're like, he can't, he's not... He's not one of us because he's not like doing the hymn to America or something like, and he, he was clearly intense. Like, I don't know if you guys have attended a thalamic ritual, but there's a thing that thalamites do where called vibrating, where you like sort of sing. I don't know how to easily explain it if you never heard it. It's kind of like when people do the um thing, like certain words and phrases and, you know, you can get really loud with it. I'm not a super loud ritualist personally, but 
some people, you know, they get they get into it, and it's certainly jarring. And Thelema was slandered by the press internationally. In London, there was a a lot a big journalism campaign by a journalist called John Bull, piece of shit, by the way. I'm very biased against Thelema, where they called Crowley the wickedest man in the world. And so there was fear around his connection to Crowley. That was something people were worried about because Crowley was slandered as this crazy Satanist. In the U.S., obviously, like, there was the same anti-Thelema sentiment. Like, Thelemites have always been sensationalized as this dangerous cult, kind of playing into, like, the stereotype of Satanism, right? Like, Thelema is the scary nightmare scenario. And it's always written as this, like, over-the-top, like, caricature of, like, there's a black magic cult that kill babies that are right around the street from your children's elementary school. Like, it's, like, that type of language. And because of that, people people are always suspect about it. I mean, there are people now. They're still... The Daily Mail still runs articles oh <laughs> about Thelema. I have, like, seen one, like, fairly recently. Was it the... There was a recent one they did about a... About, a group of Thelemites from the London chapter of the OTO had booked a back room yeah. in a vegan yes. cafe and they were having a meeting. I think it was got to be some sort of like discussion group just in a back, like, you know, like how you can get like party rooms at restaurants. It's like, yeah. it's like one of those. And someone had a black robe on or something. <laughs> and this woman went to the bathroom and she passed the restaurant and then made a Twitter thread and the Daily Mail made an entire article. I know. And the woman wasn't even like, being mean about it she was like it was just kind of funny and they were like Ooh. yeah yeah she was like this is weird yeah it wasn't like an like a scared threat or anything and the story's like satanic black magic cult and then the whole article was what were they doing they were eating pork pies <laughs> they're literally <laughs> having evil. lunch i mean i guess if it wasn't a vegan cafe that is pretty evil I yeah suppose. good friend of mine is doing his dissertation on the satanic panic it's like one of those things that it's like it's kind of always existed in ebbs and flows and the things that are always at the center of it are like Satanism and then like a lot of Western esoteric groups are always at the center lumped as this evil thing. We get hit really hard because obviously Crowley liked to play into this in his interviews that he would do. He would essentially troll and say these really out there statements that if you actually know Thelema, you get what he's actually saying. But he enjoyed, and it, it, it's not, it's not been good for us that have come after him or Parsons or anything like that. But he sort of enjoyed playing with the media. But it certainly was not good for Parsons. It's very irritating how he was just they they thought he was too subversive or dissident, and they like wrote him out because it's not like he did anything wrong. Like there are scientists who have done worse things than have some presumably kind of strange ideological beliefs. He wasn't within the image of the, like, American scientist working to get Murica to the moon because patriotism. You know, he didn't fit in that image, and so he was sort of cast out as this fringe dissident. I think the worst thing that people have accounted for Parsons doing, attributing to, like, how he was so cast out, was the fact that he, like, came to work hungover from some like OTO rituals or like heavily drunk or maybe you know high on drugs of some kind but like that's the worst of it and quite frankly there have been scientists who have remained in the community for much worse oh yeah it's just it's so silly to me that this such an influential character especially in regards to leading interest into the U.S. space program has been written out of history for really 
very little in terms of like wrongdoing compared to what we see today. Honestly, the worst things that the OTO were up to at that time in California were they would drink sometimes. Some of them did peyote and what they were okay with people being polyamorous. That's really it. Like, it's not like they were really, there was no like abuses or anything like, Oh no, they went in the desert and did, they did rituals. Oh, scary. I mean, we should be honest, like there are some truly abhorrent things which have been done in the name of science. There's sarin gas, which is a neurotoxic gas developed by Nazis. And the name is actually an acronym of all of the Nazi scientists that invented it. We still call it sarin gas. Watson and Crick, who credited with discovering the structure of DNA, of course, if you know a little bit more about that, you know that Rosalind Franklin is also um, a large part of that. Crick has used his work on DNA to proliferate his views on anti-Semitism, for example. There are horrible, horrible things that many scientists have done, and we push those under the rug in praise of their scientific achievements, and yet we kick people like Parsons out for doing a bit of peyote in the desert. It doesn't make any sense at all. Even now today, like there's there's some you know problems that the scientific community has. I don't really think Parsons reading books on anarchism and doing peyote is that bad i'm gonna be honest out of curiosity actually so has anybody done something similar where you've like recited a hymn to whatever deity you may worship or a spirit prior to like doing an experiment yes i do i actually i'm really glad that i work nights because it means that nobody else is in the lab and i can kind of do what i want specifically i usually do hymns to hygiene because i obviously work in microbiology and so lack of contamination is um, really important i haven't actually worked out whether the smoke alarm will go off if i burn incense in the lab so i haven't tried that yet but um, yeah it's definitely something i do regularly i can't say that ever like sung a hymns or anything necessarily but like I have used magic in the lab in fact actually today on Twitter I think I posted something about using a kind of binding sigil to bind a lot of my lab equipment to my bench and myself because people steal things all the time in the laboratory and it pisses me off <laughs> don't touch my stuff <laughs> so I have used magic in the laboratory not necessarily sung a hymn to anybody I do think people would look at me oddly if I did that but I certainly think it's like a legitimate way to engage with the divine. It's so funny because like we were talking about earlier, a lot of scientists, well, many are atheists. There's also a lot of us who are religious. And like for me, especially, I do science because it, by understanding nature, I can understand more about the divine. Like, And just exploring what was created is something that makes me feel closer to the, to the divine as well. Almost like a puzzle. <laughs> and so like that's why I do it. And it's why I'm religious. And I think that's the case for many scientists who are also religious. It's so odd to me that that kind of desire to cohabitate like religion and spirituality with science was seen so negatively at that time of course it also kind of makes sense given the nature of what was going on but it's nice to see that we have transitioned to so far where it's less frowned upon now as it was then i don't do i'm not a scientist i'm the token non-science person here but i do random hymns if i'm in a bad situation or something's going on uh nike you guys had on the podcast previously on a tech episode nike was driving me to the airport in the middle of the night and the car was starting to break down and I literally like pull out my phone. I'm like, we're doing the hymn to Mercury right now. And Nike's like, it is 3 a.m. And I'm like, this will work. And the car started running. I was like, I told you, I'm right. <laughs> Stuff oh, yeah. works. Absolutely. I When I have a long travel like trip to go on, at the, I, I recite the Orphic hymn to make Mercury before I begin. Yeah. And then at the end, I have a little prayer of thanks that I say when I arrive safely. Like that's totally a thing. Bell, do you have anything like that? 
Yeah, I drew a sigil on, bought a, a ticket, like a, a train ticket. I bought a temporary one before I got my permanent one and I drew a sigil on it. And I did it during planetary hours for Mercury. So that way, when I would travel every time, just like carrying it, carrying it with me. Um, I actually have all of my used train tickets. When I used to live in New York, I have all of my New York City train tickets over there as well did you see so this there's a picture that's uploaded to twitter i didn't see it in person i live in new york city and someone made a shrine to mercury I at one of the that. subway stations <laughs> I, love I, that. I love that i would be so tempted to do it if i didn't know that it was going to get taken down or destroyed immediately <laughs> but you know i built myself a little travel shrine to like a syncretized hermes mercury that i carry with me and i set up in a car it's very incognito, so it's hard for people to tell what it is. And I brought it with me when I went on vacation. But my mom, my mom and I are very much of the same wavelength. And she was cleaning, and she said that she stopped. She looked at it, and she was like, "Hmm, I shouldn't touch this." <laughs> she just kept cleaning around it. I don't know. It works, man. Especially, I find that Hermes Mercury. It's just very. It's just very apt for like good tech situations. I know at work, this is going to sound so extreme, but there are days that I do do this. I will actually schedule my work around the planetary hours in terms of like what will fit with what best. I, I do this too. I do this too. It, 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 it works super well. Like if I'm going to have a hard conversation, I might do it in the hours of Mars to gain courage or Mercury for good communication. Like either would work. I do that all the time and it's amazing what it can do. And I don't necessarily recite the Orphic Kims or anything like in the lab because again, people would think I'm crazy. Not that that should matter, yeah. but it does, unfortunately. Well, it takes, it takes some balls. I look, unlike Parsons, I don't loudly recite hymns in public. I will sometimes like do like, where you like kind of whisper and your mouth's barely right. moving like you know your mouth's moving you can barely you can barely hear it so no one beside you can but i'm not i don't have the the boldness to just like vibrate the lbrp and do the hymn to, <laughs> to pan in front of everyone do the but, whole middle pillar ritual <laughs> my god that would take a while too okay, yeah God. The one I've done on the bus, if you don't want to um, look like you're saying something, is actually pretend to be on the phone because nobody's going to listen to your conversation, but you can kind of still be saying something. Um, and that's been when I've stuck in a traffic jam. Works quite well. I will say that's one of the best things about masks. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not only commentating how you feel about situations that are going down. Like the amount of times, like I work in the tourist industry on weekends, work full time. But now since I have a mask on, when I'm working there, people will like say some dumb shit to me and I'll just like grumble at them. <laughs> but under my mask, so they can't tell what I'm saying. But I've done the same thing with like singing or praying is like literally just praying out loud. But because I have a mask on, can't tell that my lips are moving. It's great. There's an old school thalamic trick that I was taught where I don't know if you guys know some ceremonial magic or if you see knocking, like three knocks, four knocks. Take the tree of life. Each sephira has a number, right? And if you want to embody a planetary energy, just knock that amount of times or tap it with your foot. I love that. Because it's it's super subtle. Yeah. So we kind of touched upon how Jack's role as a scientist influences the approach to occultism and also the reverse, how his practice of occultism influenced the scientific approach. But what are the ways in which you think that happened? And we can kind of touch on scientific illuminism too while we're here. Hanny, I think you initially wanted to discuss this. So do you want to take the lead here? Basically, scientific illuminism is kind of an approach to occultism, which is, I wouldn't say it's scientific, but it's scientized. 
Some people say that chaos magic is more like this because it's more experimental in nature, but maybe Georgina can expound on this in a little bit more detail. It's basically trying to take a little bit more of an experimental approach and trying to systematize your occult practice. So scientific Illuminism is, and it was really pushed. So Thelema, there are a few groups, one of the big ones being the AA, which is a teaching order. Basically, you get assigned a mentor, the mentor teaches you, then you mentor the next person down. The AA had a publication called the Equinox, where the majority of the rituals that are not published in Liber O. Liber O is the other big technical Thelemic document we'll release. This is a really old copy of one, and on the cover of all of them, they put the method of science, the aim of religion, which is sort of the guiding principles of scientific Illuminism, which is essentially to do your rituals and keep a magical record, which is the Thelemic term for Book of Shadows or Grimoire, whatever you want to call it, and write down how it worked out for you. And then from that, try to discover the truth, which relates to the theosophic idea to me of the highest form of religion is truth, which is a Blavatsky quote that I adore. These Thelemites believe, and if you're an AA style Thelemite, they kind of still do this, that your magic should be experimental to see the truth, to find out what religion really is. And through the practice, we can discover the truth. So basically like your UPG is the guiding way to figuring out the truth about religion. So you should use a scientific approach and practice to try to discover that truth. Thing is, scientific Illuminism is not the same as like science TM. It's, it's, it's a scientific framing is probably the better way to put it, a scientific outlook. Because it's not like you could do double blind trials on how to do an LBRP. And most people are to get into scientific Illuminism. First of all, it was an idea that came out of the early 1900s, which doesn't have the same science that we have today. Uh, science has changed I don't know how much the scientific method would have changed from then to now, but I'm sure like there's been changes in how science is conducted since this sort of idea came up, but it's typically wrapped into larger Thelemic approaches to magic. It's basically like do experiments and through that we can discover the truth, right? You use the methods and that will give you the goal. The goal is to discover the truth about religion. That's the whole like end point. You see this as a very common belief in Thelemic spaces. Chaos magic has a big Thelema influence on it because Austin Osmond Spare, who I call a proto-chaos magician because his ideas about sigilization and experimentation were a break from Thelema. He studied under Crowley and he was very close with Kenneth Grant who founded Typhonian Thelema, which is a break-off sect of Thelema. And then using Spare's idea, came the big chaos magic thinkers like Carol, Hine, etc., who started chaos magic proper. So this scientific Illuminism take was very influential on these people and on modern chaos magic. I think in a lot of ways, chaos magic is closer to scientific Illuminism than Thelema is. It's like, with us, it's like just a way people kind of structure their rituals, right? Like, don't do a ritual if it doesn't work for you. See what it does and then find your truth from there. But yeah, that's basically it. It's a pretty simple idea. There are people who have written entire books on it. It's really not that hard to figure out. It's just like method of science, aim of religion. You just say that sentence and it's pretty much what it is. But Parsons obviously was into this. Parsons didn't write about it super, super heavily, but he would have been taught it because of the people he was learning from. And you can see it in California Thelemites today. They'll talk about it. The biggest online blogger that I've seen talk about scientific Illuminism the most is a Thelemite in California. <laughs> so I don't know if that's evidence, but you know, it's it's still a common take. It's it's a big belief in the Thelema sphere. Yeah, we actually had this question on our Discord. I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before about kind of which occult paradigm or tradition we think embodies 
like the scientific methodology the most. And the answer that came up was chaos magic. Um, unsurprisingly, I, I think, because there's kind of this, I would say more on the scientific methodology side and less on like science as a whole, right? As you were talking about earlier, this whole method of here's my hypothesis, here's what I think will work, let's try it, then we'll go back and look at it and see what didn't didn't work and adjust from there. And I think that's very true within scientific illuminism. It's very much so taking the methodology, even the scientific method, which has been updated and kind of not necessarily changed, but we've become more rigorous with it, I think, as, as we've moved forward in the future history now. But that kind of base method you can apply that to occultism or really any kind of, I think, traditional ceremonial framework in a sense and use that as kind of a guiding principle, not only to keep your practice grounded, but also help you be a little bit more objective about what is and what does and doesn't work to help you essentially establish like what your truth is. So Jack Parsons, back to him. He unfortunately died at the very young age of 37 in a big explosive accident. This was actually right before he had decided to move to Israel. I think it was in the 1950s, like 1952-ish. He essentially was trying to go back to Israel so that he could resume his study of rocket science over there. But before that happened, he had a package of explosives delivered to his home. And of course, like he did when he was a child, he began experimenting with it in his home laboratory and everything blew up and it killed him along with it. So that is unfortunately how his life ended at the very young age. But if he had survived, how do you think maybe it would have changed things? Well, a quick note on his death. Um, mm-hmm. When he died, it was a lot. there was a lot of press given to it. And there were a lot of conspiracy theories at the time. There were many people, and I'm not going to say I think they have a point. There were some theories that his death was not as cut and dry as it was reported to be. Because the information the newspapers published about it was really vague. And the, like, cause of death was clearly the explosives. But there were different theories on how it could have gone. With some people phrasing, having a theory that it was some sort of murder attempt. Like, well, I guess it'd be a successful murder, not an attempt. But there were a lot of theories. And there still are around, like, why it happened that way. There's a lot of skepticism towards, like, obviously he died, but... If it was just an accident, there's a lot of skepticism around that. You can read some, if you want to read some 40s conspiracy theorist news articles, you can find them. But I think they're interesting. I'm normally not a fan of conspiracies because a lot of them I think are not true and harmful. There is some some air of suspicion around his death. But I, I, I am very unhappy that he died young because I really wish he had developed his occult systems further because... What he was writing about right around the time of his passing was very compelling. In terms of science, I mean, I think he would have discovered more amazing things. I mean, a lot of his achievements that he's so well known for happened when he was in his late 20s, which is impressive. He was very, very young when he came up with a lot of this. Well, I really wish he had fleshed out the witchcraft as a tradition. I think that would have been really cool. A lot of his stuff was burned by by Cameron, his partner who there's a lot of interesting history around him and her. And it's a very, very compelling story. And her art's very beautiful. They had an exhibit of hers relatively recently that I didn't get to go to. And I'm very bummed about that. Now a group called the Cameron Parsons Foundation that have a lot of really good resources about him and her. I I wish, I think he would have made even more discoveries. We would have had more information on him. We could have seen his ideas really flesh out and get to their like fuller form. Because a lot of his ideas were cut short. Specifically with his additions to Thelema, his understanding of Babylon, which 
his understanding of Babylon I find a lot more compelling than Crowley's because uh, Crowley, whenever he wrote about the Divine Feminine, he, Crowley's bias has kind of got in the way of that. And so his understanding of the Divine Feminine, I feel like sometimes is a little limited by his own perceptions of women. Parsons had a very different view on women. Parsons really liked the feminist movement at the time. Some of his ideas align with the second wave feminists that would pick up in the 70s. You know, like that movement, he had a lot of parallels too. So I think it would have been really interesting to see like how his ideas would have developed as culture shifted. Could he have come back to the US? I feel like Thelema wouldn't have collapsed as much in the US because when Agape Lodge collapsed after him, there was nothing. I mean, obviously Thelemites existed in the country, but we didn't have an organization. We weren't really unified in any way. And I think that wouldn't have happened, which would have put us on a better foot for what would come in the 80s, which would obviously be hard on our community. So Parsons was a temporary know. lodge leader, right? Yeah. How long was that before the lodge collapsed? Do you know? It was pretty quick. March 1941. Yeah. So it was like, right. Because he, he sort of, what he did that was really interesting with Agape is he started what we called the Parsonage, which was kind of a quasi-commune living situation, which if you guys don't, I'm assuming the listeners aren't familiar with the OTO structure. The OTO does not have communes. The OTO does not let you live there. It's like uh, you go to the lodge, you don't stay there, you go for the ritual and leave. He and his home allowed Thelemites to live with him. So it was sort of a commune adjacent situation, which obviously that didn't continue after that. That actually got him in trouble with his neighbors because he had, I believe it was gay people in there or something. It was either gay or people of color. One of the two, the like neighborhood community was really upset with him. It was it was one of those two topics. I don't remember which. The things that they hated the most in the late 40s and 50s, early 50s. Yeah, because he was living in a nice neighborhood by the time he was running the parsonage. He was holding it together because he was kind of funding Agape Lodge. Thelema is not a rich religion. I will just say this, even now, a lot of the lodges are like barely making rent, right? Like, they're dependent on member contributions and Parsons was really funding it. So after he was no longer funding it, that was a big problem because you can see the OTO's tax audits. They're not rolling like Scientology. I will tell you that. Thelema <laughs> has always been a broke religion. We're, let's be honest. I really wish Parsons had stuck around because he was so brilliant in the field of rocket science. And I think that we missed out on a lot of that could have been really helpful innovations by Parsons regarding fuel. The first rocket, Apollo 11, didn't reach the moon until 1969. It's quite possible that if Parsons had stuck around with the JPL and the Aerojet Engineering Corporation that we possibly might have reached even earlier if he had been allowed to come back to the U.S. and continue with his experimentation um, at Caltech. I don't know Parsons as much for his um, kind of occult influence because I'm not a fellow mind. I haven't studied that too much. But just the rocket science alone, it's so complicated. And to have somebody as good at it as Parsons, I mean, even like we see how how much the Aerojet like corporation and then also the JPL grew during the times that Parsons took over. I mean, it was it was insane. They went from this research group to them becoming like a full foundation getting orders from the military and, you know, launching rocket ships, like his leadership and also his knowledge in addition to his, the way he worked with other people was clearly effective. I just, I think it's really unfortunate that we didn't get to see more of his innovation because I'm sure there could have been a ton more things that he came out with in terms of fuel. I think so too. He was really brilliant in a way, even though his boldness did cause him to die because of his experimentations, his willingness to risk and sometimes put safety last 
was actually really important in his ability to develop these things. I do think it's a good a good time to ask what lessons could modern occultists learn from Jack Parsons? For what we can learn from Parsons, I think that his understanding of devotion is something we can take. And same with his discipline and his will. Will is the translation of Greek for Thelema. Will is the core foundation of Thelema. And he really embodied it because being a Thelemite is more than like doing the rituals. It's embodying will. It's being sort of filled with that fire and passion. And that is so important in being any sort of a cultist, even if you're not a Thelemite, to dare, to will. Maybe not the keep silent part as podcasters. Maybe we're not as good about the last one there. But I mean, he really fully embodied that. Also his willingness to experiment and to say out there things like, him putting his contributions to Babylon, him channeling Liber 49, those were seen as kind of out there things for someone to say within Thelema. And we sometimes need to be willing to like share our UPG, to take risk with our practice, experiment a bit, take our tradition in a new direction rather than just repeating what our predecessors did. I think all of those are great lessons. I just, I think he really embodied a lot of the virtues of an occultist. If you want to learn more about Parsons, I'll give you guys some resource recommendations. Um, Richard Kaczynski is sort of the go-to historian for Thelema, but he hasn't written as much on Parsons as he has on other people. This book, The Eloquent Blood, The Goddess Babylon, and the Constructions of Femininity in Western Esotericism by Manon Hindenburg White goes into his history really well. The Two Antichrist by Peter Gray is a book on Hubbard and Parsons that came out this year that's really, really good. A Rose Veiled in Black has a chapter on Parsons that's really brilliant. And of course, read Parsons' Liber 49 and Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. Those are his two works that you should definitely check out. And both of those are really short and our medic library has both of them on their website. So his stuff, he doesn't have as much writing out as a lot of other occultists. He can read all his work in like a couple hours. That's your homework, listeners. I think my admiration for Parsons comes from his innate, his curiosity and his determinism. So from such a young age, he was so curious and he just like gave everything he had to that curiosity. I mean, his desire to learn about space and like in launching rocket, I mean, it never, it never faltered. It was kind of 100% from the beginning and that curiosity and drive to make something happen or to learn about something, I think is incredibly insightful and a good lesson for us to take that if you're passionate about something pursue it even to the point of maybe an extreme in some cases not all (laughs) but that's just it's a very beautiful I think thing that Parson just you know shows so well even how he pushed for like specifically when they were establishing the rocket research group they were declined so many times by so many people and it was it was one person who made the difference and made, made this become a reality but they never stopped, right? Like despite all the pushback, even Parsons within his occult and scientific career, there was always people disgruntled with his work in, in one way or another, but he never let that face him. And I also think that's really important, especially for the occult community where we have this discussion of like, someone doesn't approve of my practice or like, this is the right way to do it. Or this is not the right way to do it. Parsons got some of that same critique, but he essentially just said like, fuck, I don't really care what you think. This is what's working. And I think we can embody that as an occult community to just do your own thing follow your true will and if it works it works don't like listen to what other people have to say yes if nothing else it has helped me feel more validated about saying hymns in the lab <laughs> this has been really <laughs> parsons would be proud of you <laughs> i hope so 
Haven't exploded too many things though, so you never know. You gotta get those numbers up. Gotta cause a couple explosions. There you go. I feel like you guys all covered everything. I guess honestly, I I often wish I had a more experimental approach to my own path as someone who like comes from like a a recon tradition I often have to like (laughs) remind myself that you know UPG and experimentation are extremely important in finding your own inner truth so just kind of unashamedly embracing that and I, I often find myself that I hesitate, like even when I do rituals out in the middle of the woods with like friends, I often find myself like hesitating and like, being like, oh, we're going to be too loud instead of actually fully committing to the ritual. So I think it's just kind of a reminder myself that if he could do that in front of a bunch of Caltech bros in the 40s, then I can do that in front of my friends in the middle of the woods in 2021. So being more courageous and more open i think all right well that concludes it for this episode georgina thank you so much for being a guest and coming on to talk about jack parsons it was such a delight to have you we will link all of georgina's stuff down below so you can go follow her her youtube channel is dot darling along with most of the platforms if i am saying that correctly of course we will always link all the resources for our episodes below in addition to all the resources that georgina mentioned they will also be down below for you in case you would like to take a look But other than that, if you haven't joined our Discord yet, please feel free to. We have it linked in the episodes. We have remembered for the last couple, so hopefully that will continue. Feel free to join and have discussions with us about occultism and science. And then also, if you aren't already, you can follow us on Instagram at Test Tubes and Cauldrons, where we post hints of our upcoming episodes. And then if you want to guess them before Friday, you're welcome to. And then we actually post our episodes on Friday. But until next time, have a great day, everybody. And we'll see you later.